0: Time.com, white American Christianity needs to be honest about its history of white supremacy. Supporters of Donald Trump pray outside the U.S. Capitol January 6th in Washington, D.C. By Carrie Wallace, January 14, 2021, 11.03, East Coast Time, in the morning. Carrie Wallace is an author working at the intersection of art, faith, and science she grew up in small towns in Michigan, and lives and works in Brooklyn. In the past few days, I've seen all kinds of statements from Christian leaders trying to distance themselves from the violent mob at the Capitol. Christian writers known for their thoughtfulness lament that, quote-unquote, somehow white supremacy has crept into our churches, and the faculty of a major evangelical institution put up a manifesto saying that the events at the Capitol, quote-unquote, bear absolutely no resemblance to the Christianity they teach. That mob, they're telling us, is a French element. They've radically misunderstood the real message of American Christianity. This could not be further from the truth. I believe the mob at the Capitol has radically misunderstood the teachings and life of Jesus, but it is an absolutely logical conclusion of white American Christianity. Hundreds of years ago, the church laid the foundation for the theft of the Americas, enslavement of Africans and Native Americans, and centuries of brutal colonization worldwide, with the doctrine that it was okay to take land and liberty from people who were not Christian. Within their first decade on this continent, the holiness movement of the Puritans who told themselves they'd come to the New World in quotations to spread the gospel, had virtually exterminated the Picoit people and enslaved many survivors. And Roger Williams, the Massachusetts minister who became the first advocate for religious freedom and the separation of church and state, was banished from his colony by his fellow Christians for objecting to government attempts to enforce the first four of the Ten Commandments refusing to swear an oath of loyalty to the government of Massachusetts and saying grace over his meals at the wrong time. Alone and sick, he fled into the New England winter, which almost killed him. Though his fellow Puritans gave lip service to the idea that they had come to the continent to share the light of Christ, he was the only one who bothered to learn local customs or languages, save that winter by the Narra na- people, he was without a church home when he died years later. Williams's doctrine of the separation of church and state was eventually inscribed in the American Constitution, and Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence reflects the strong influence of Christianity in the American colonies by rooting the right to demand in our status as creatures of God, But the Declaration of Independence also describes Native Americans as, quote-unquote, merciless Indian savages, and the Constitution defined African Americans as only three-fifths of a person. Despite America's early public piety, this country is explicitly founded on the idea that the people who built its farms, roads, cities, and wealth without freedom or payment are not quite human. And despite Jefferson's rousing insistence on the equality of quote-unquote men in the eyes of God, his own wealth came mainly from a factory he staffed with enslaved children. Sentimental depictions of Christian faith among enslaved people are popular with American Christians, and the rich tradition of gospel music, perhaps America's greatest contribution to world culture or the church, was unquestionably created by people living in American slavery. But people in slavery in America did not start becoming Christian in large numbers until around 1800 because American slaveholders avoided sharing Christian teaching with the people they enslaved so that they wouldn't find themselves in the position of holding fellow Christians in slavery, which might force them to give up their quote-unquote property. For early voices that spoke out against slavery within the American church, the price was high. Benjamin Lay, who shamed the Quakers into becoming abolitionists with stunts like standing outside meeting houses on Sunday morning barefoot in the snow to remind the good Christians of the condition of the people they held in slavery at home, died unwelcome as a, as a member in any Quaker church. Died unwelcome as a member in any Quaker church. For the vast majority of American history, Christian ministers have spoken with passion and vigor in favor of slavery, segregation, and white supremacy. Not even all Christian abolitionists were convinced of the full humanity of the people they fought to free. The Ku Klux Klan is a movement deeply rooted in the church in both the North and the South. When black Christian clergy organized 1963 March on Washington, where Martin Luther King Jr., a Baptist minister, delivered his I Have a Dream speech, Christianity Today, founded not even a decade earlier by Billy Graham and edited at the time by one of evangelicalism's most prominent theologians, Carl F.H. Henry, called it a quote-unquote a mob spectacle. Today, American neighborhoods are more segregated than they were in the years fought in the I'm sorry. Today, American neighborhoods are more segregated than they were in the years immediately following the Civil War. But churches are even more segregated than the rest of society. Sunday morning when people stream into services is one of the most segregated hours in America. It was that way before the coronavirus ever appeared in America. That's my adding my two cents in there. These are not minor aberrations, side notes to our history, either as a country or a church. White supremacy, racism, and segregation are a cancer running through our major organs and our apathy toward them or our comfort with them compromised and threatened to kill all the other good we hope to do. We cannot get rid of them by pretending they're not central to our history and central to the way we live today. And in our hearts, we know they are. That's why so many Christian institutions and leaders have failed to speak out directly against racism and white supremacy, instead taking refuge in recent days in vague calls for prayer and healing. We know if we confront these foundational American sins directly, their supporters will cause convulsions that may tear our institutions apart and knock us from our coveted positions. But there can be no healing without this direct confrontation. You cannot cure cancer by pretending it is not there. The white American church can't pretend that the mob at the Capitol is not part of us, it is us. The white American church can't pretend that the mob at the Capitol is not part of us, it is us. To have any hope of healing, we must acknowledge that fact. We must admit our own ignorance, our own apathy, our own discomfort with people who are different from us, our own desire to believe that we're better than everyone else, our own willingness to take things that are not ours and keep things we did not earn, our profound bent to lie about ourselves, our willingness to do violence to get what we want, our willingness to turn away when violence is done to others because it benefits us. As Christians, we must forcefully publicly name and repudiate these things. We must be honest about how long a history they have and how deep they go and about how much work it will take to eradicate them. And we must do that work. Claiming that mob isn't us might help American Christians beat back the sickening ways of shame and fear we feel at the revelation of the ugly truth of what we've been, what we've been part of all this time but it won't save the life of the American church. I'm going to read that again. Claiming that mob isn't us might help American Christians beat back the sickening ways of shame and fear. We feel at the revelation of the ugly truth of what we've been part of all this time, but it won't save the life of the American church and will never set us free to be anything better than what we are now. September 22nd, 2020, 8.51 a.m. East Coast time. Heard on All Things Considered, Tom Gl- Shelton, NPR.org, WAMU 88.5, American University Radio. Obituaries. Robert Great's only white pastor to back Montgomery bus boycott dies at 92. In this May 20th, 1957 photo, Reverend Robert S. Great Center, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Reverend Ralph D. Abernathy left talk outside the witness room during a bombing trial in Montgomery, Alabama. Greats, the only white minister to support the Montgomery bus boycott, died Sunday, September 20, 2020. He was 92. The Lutheran church did not have many ordained African-American ministers in 1955. So when a call went out that year for a new Lutheran pastor to serve a majority black congregation in Montgomery, Alabama, it was, un- it was answered by a white clergyman in Ohio the Reverend Robert Greats. Greats and his wife Jeannie already had a record of church-based civil rights activism, and some Lutheran authorities worried that Greats might become ensnarled in the developing racial unrest in Montgomery where the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was a pastor. He had to promise he would not start trouble. Jeannie Greats recalled in a 2019 interview with NPR. Well, he did not start the trouble, he just joined the trouble. Greates died in Montgomery on Sunday at the age of 92. A few months after Greats and his wife arrived in Montgomery, Rosa Parks and other local leaders, including King, launched a bus boycott to protest segregated seating in city buses. Greats was acquainted with Parks because the local NAACP Youth Council, which Parks directed, met in Greats' church. The call to boycott the bus system was problematic for many black workers in Montgomery because they depended on bus transportation to get to and from their jobs. Greats immediately began organizing carpools to assist with their transportation needs and spent three hours each morning driving people to work in his own car. In Montgomery, 1955, that was enough to make Greats a target of the Ku Klux Klan. Twice his house was firebombed. Neither he nor his wife nor the young children were injured, but a third bomb thrown at their house was enough to kill them all fortunately fortunately it did not detonate detonate and his wife also faced death threats directed at them and their three children one of them a toddler fbi agents urged them to leave montgomery but they stayed encouraged in large part by the support they received from their african-american friends and neighbors we feel that the Lord has put a circle of love around us, Jeannie Great said. There were people who hated us, but that hate could not get through to us because of the Lord's protection. In that 2019 interview, Jeannie Great shared such stories at her husband's bedside. Suffering from Parkinson's disease, he was too ill to speak. But in 2015, on the 60th anniversary of the bus boycott, Gretz was one of the speakers on a panel organized by NPR member station uh, WVAS. His message that day was that the struggle for racial justice in which he had participated was at its base, quote unquote, a spiritual movement. It was the people of God putting into practice their understanding of what God meant for their lives to be like, Great said. In Montgomery, it was black Christians teaching white Christians how to be Christian. It was black Christians teaching white Christians how to be Christian. Greats and his wife left Montgomery in 1958 and continued their social justice work in locations around the country. In 2007, they moved back to Montgomery. He is survived by his wife Jeannie and their seven children, along with numerous grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and one great-great-grandchild. Much respect to Robert Greats. Much respect to Jeannie Greats. um, Much respect to... Carrie Wallace, I appreciate anyone who has a genuine heart for the marginalized. White supremacist ideas have historical roots in U.S. Christianity. July 1st, 2020, East Coast time, heard on All Things Considered. Tom Shelton again in PR.org, special series America, reckons with racial injustice. Two blood-splattered freedom writers, John Lewis and James Work, stand together after segregationists attacked them in the early 1960s in Montgomery, Alabama. Lewis and a young civil rights activist will later become a member of Congress from Georgia. Updated on Wednesday, July 22, 2020 at 1208 East Coast time. When a young Southern Baptist pastor named Alan Cross arrived in Montgomery, Alabama in January two thousand in January 2000. He knew it was where the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. had his first church and where Rosa Parks helped launch the famous bus boycott, but he didn't know some other details of the city's role in civil rights history. The more he learned, the more trouble he became by one event in particular, the savage attack in May 1961 on a busload of black and white freedom riders who had traveled defiantly together to Montgomery in a challenge to segregation. Over the next 15 years, Cross, who is white, would regularly take people to the old Greyhound Depot in Montgomery to highlight what happened that spring day. They pull in right here on the side, Cross said, standing in front of the depot, and it was quiet when they got here. But But then once they started getting off the bus, around 500 people come out, men, women, and children. Men were holding the Freedom Riders back, and the women were hitting them with their purses, and holding their children up to claw their faces. Some of the men carried lead pipes and baseball bats. Two of the Freedom Riders, the civil rights activist John Lewis and a white ally, James werg were beaten unconscious. Though he had grown up in Mississippi and was familiar with the history of racial conflict in the South, Cross was horrified by the story of the 1961 attack on the Freedom Riders. Montgomery was known as a City of Churches. Fresh out of seminary, Cross had come there to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why didn't white Christians show up, he recalled, wondering. To his dismay, Cross learned that many of the people in the white mob were regular churchgoers. In the years that followed, he made it part of his ministry to educate his fellow Christians about the attack and prompt them to reflect on its meaning. You think about the South being Christian, but that wasn't Christianity, Cross said. So what happened here in the white church? How do we get to that point? It's a question explored in his 2014 book, When Heaven and Earth Collide, Racism, Southern Evangelicals, and the Better Way of Jesus. The answer to the question lies partly in U.S. history, beginning in the days of slavery and Jim Crow segregation, but not ending there. Elements of racist ideology have long been present in white Christianity in the United States. Racism from the pulpit... Less than three weeks after the 1961 attack on the Freedom Riders, Montgomery's, mo- Montgomery's most prominent pastor, Henry Lyon Jr., gave a fiery speech before the local white citizens council, denouncing the civil rights protesters and the cause for which they were beaten from a Christian perspective. I'm about to make fun of Henry. Listen. Ladies and gentlemen, for 15 years I've had the privilege of being pastor of a white Baptist church in this city, Lyon said. If we stand 100 years from now, it will still be a white church. I am a believer in a separation of the races, and I am nonetheless a Christian. The crowd applauded if you want to get in a fight with the one that started separation of the races then you come face to face with your god he declared the difference in color the difference in our body our minds our life our mission upon the face of this earth is god given Lyon saw himself as a devout Bible believer, and he was far from an extremist in the Southern Baptist world. A former president of the Alabama Baptist Convention, his Montgomery church had more than 3,000 members. How respected people of God can openly promote racist views was a question that would trouble many Southerners in the years that followed. Among them was a young woman growing up in East Texas in the 1970s carolyn renee dupont the girl's grandmother took her regularly to church made her listen to sermons on the radio and gave her a quarter for every bible verse she memorized but the grandmother believed just as deeply in the superiority of the white race i asked her about that once dupont recalled i'm about to make fun of granny and she said i just don't believe blacks should be treated the same as whites dupont Now, a historian at Eastern Kentucky University said the experience with her grandmother spurred her to focus her research on the racial views of Southern white evangelicals. I wanted to understand what seemed like a central riddle about the South, she said. The part of the country that was the most fervent about religious faith was also the one that practiced white supremacy most enthusiastically. It was the same question that bothered Cross as a young pastor in Montgomery slavery in the bible an earlier point in american history some christian theologians went so far as to argue that the enslavement of human beings was justifiable from a biblical point of view james henley thornwell a harvard educated scholar who committed huge sections of the bible to memory regularly defended slavery and promoted white supremacy from his pulpit at the first Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina where he was the senior pastor in the years leading up to the Civil War. As long... Okay, okay. I gotta make fun of another demon looking like a human. As long as that African race and its comparative degradation coexist side by side with the white, Thornwell declared in a famous 1861 sermon. Bondage is its normal condition. Thornwell was a slave owner, and in his public pronouncements he told fellow Christians they need not feel guilty about enslaving other human beings. The relation of master and slave stands on the same foot with the other relations of life, Thornwell insisted. In itself it is not inconsistent with the will of God is not sinful the christian scriptures thornwell said not only failed to condemn they as distinctly sanctioned slavery as any other social condition of man among the new testament verses thornwell could cite was the apostle paul's letter to the ephesians where he writes slaves obey your human masters with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart biblical scholars now discount the relevance of the passage to a consideration of chattel slavery Thornwell's reassurance was immensely important to all those who had a stake in the existing economic and political system in the South. In justifying slavery, he was speaking not just as a theologian, but as a Southern patriot. I'll add Southern talking parrot. In the first Presbyterian cemetery, Thornwell's name appears prominently on a monument to church members who served the Confederate cause in the Civil War. Slavery in the minds of many was necessary for the South to thrive, said Bobby Donaldson, director of the Center for Civil Rights History and Research at the University of South Carolina. So Thornwell used his pulpit to defend the South against charges by the North by abolitionists. He provided the intellectual defenses that many slaveholders needed. I don't like their sense of need. Actually, I despise their sense of need. Thornwell's first Presbyterian congregation included slave owners and businessmen and other members of the political and economic elite in Colombia, and as their pastor, he represented their interest. A belief in white supremacy was a foundational part of Southern culture, which is one reason some otherwise devout Christians have failed to challenge it the Southern way. Lyons' opening prayer before the White Citizens Council meeting in Montgomery included words starkly reminiscent of the Civil War era. We stand on the sacred soil of Alabama in the cradle of the Confederacy of our beloved Southland, he said. Help us to realize with all the fervency of our heart and mind that every inch of ground we stand on tonight is sacred and honorable. Ugh. I fear that their regional culture was at risk, lay behind. A fear that their regional culture was at risk lay behind much of the opposition to the civil rights movement among Southern Christians. Cross, the Montgomery pastor who was dismayed by what he learned of the attack on the Freedom Riders, ultimately decided that the best explanation for the involvement of Christians was that they were acting on the basis of their perceived self-interest. People try to protect their way of life, he said. You know, what's best for me and my family? You even begin to use... God as a means to an end. It makes a lot of sense to people, and they're like, well, that's what everybody does. A quote-unquote don't-rock-the-boat philosophy can have a powerful appeal among people who are unnerved by the prospect of social change, and church leaders may feel powerless to counter it. In 1965, Lyon's more moderate son, Henry Lyon III, was called to lead an all-white Baptist church in Selma, Alabama. He arrived in the city two months after the bloody Sunday confrontation on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where more than 2,000 civil rights marchers were savagely attacked by Alabama state troopers and local law officers. The younger Lyon, who died in 2018, never adopted his father's bigoted rhetoric, and his wife, Sarah Jane Lyon, said he was willing to open his church to African-Americans During the 21 years, Lyon was the church's pastor, however. His congregation never accepted black members, apparently because he did not feel free to press the issue. Selma wasn't ready for it, Sarah Jane Lyon told NPR in an interview. He knew it would accomplish nothing if he upset everybody and pushed, you know, to integrate the church. Sarah Jane Lyon volunteers at the First Baptist Church in Montgomery. She says her late husband, who led an all-white church for 21 years in Selma, Alabama, felt that push for integration would upset his congregation and, quote-unquote, accomplish nothing. I thought Jesus is for moral courage, not moral cowardice. Hmm. Churches operate within a cultural context. By challenging local customs and perspectives, pastors may alienate the white economic and political players who serve as their deacons, elders, Sunday school teachers, and financial supporters. Again, I thought Jesus is for moral courage and not moral cowardice, because that fake pastor, First Presbyterian Church, is a devil. What and was a devil masquerading as an angel? Devils masquerade as angels, according to biblical theology. How do they not comprehend? How do they choose to reject? Basic understanding such as that. In his sermon, Sarah Jane Lyon recalled her husband would tell his congregation, I have not come here to change your heart. There's no way I can do that. Only the Lord can change your heart. I asked whether her husband ever discussed racial justice as a pastor, she said, That was not his style of preaching. He didn't get up and talk about local issues. He preached the word of God. Moral cowardice. Plus. Don't you have to give an account for every thought, word, and deed, according to what scripture says? So, his afterlife? (sighs) All I can say is, in hip-hop, the spot's getting hot. The church and the status quo. After leaving Selma, the Lions relocated to Montgomery and joined the First Baptist Church there. With about 5,000 members, the church has a central place to end civic life. The congregation is almost entirely white, but it's not because of a deliberate policy. The Pastor Jay Wells, said he welcomes everyone. Pastor Jay Wells leads a prayer service at First Baptist Church Mount Montgomery 2019. Says he, ha- he has quote unquote no idea how many African Americans are in his congregation where the body of Christ will need Jesus. That's all I need to know, he says. To me that's not good enough. The body of Christ. You don't have black Christian bodies. In that particular house of God. All I can say is when those fake phony pastors die. They will be turned away from heaven. It's heating up y'all. <laughs> When I came to know the Lord, I became colorblind, Wolf said. When some visitors asked Wolf how many African Americans attended his church, he said he had no idea. That's the epitome of horribleness, if you ask me. I don't know how many white members we have. Bad answer. Bad Wolf. He told NPR, I don't know how many white members we have. Bad answer. And... Christians are supposed to be sensitive people, not insensitive people. Christians are supposed to be sensitized, not desensitized. Like, does it make any difference? Yes. Duh. I just know that we have people crafting the image of God. Word salad. If you, it okay. I, I'm putting my two cents in it. So after he said, like, it doesn't make any difference, that's why I said, yes, duh. Then he just said, I just know, I just know that we have people craft an image of God. Word salad is my comment. I am, And then he says, I am completely resistant to this idea of breaking things down on a demographic basis. He's talking in circles. He's doing unnecessary tant dance. It's either Jesus or money. If I serve Jesus, that means my income means I have to take pay cuts to the point where I have no more income. But didn't a famous Nazarene say, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? We are the body of Christ, we need Jesus, and that's all I need to know. Sucker punk. Enough said. On the other side of Montgomery, where African-Americans are concentrated, Pastor Terrence Jones also preaches about needing Jesus, though with a message attuned to a multiracial congregation. The son of a black Southern Baptist preacher, Jones said he thinks the Christian church is partly to blame for America, quote unquote, dropping the ball in his words on race issues. I agree with him strongly, 100 percent. Terrence Jones pastors of the Montgomery Church, strong tirelessly washington park says christians need to focus on racism more seriously the message of jesus is a unifying message Sean said according to ephesians chapter 2 he tears down every dividing wall of hostility through his death on the cross i think we've done a poor job of showing the world that because we've been so segregated i think he made an understatement on the word poor i'll say piss poor job jones argues that christians need to focus on racism far more seriously he's right that's me saying it when people get shot when donald trump says something racially charged racially charged is an understatement racist is the correct statement people get pushed into their corners and they don't wrestle with what does this mean for me as a minority what does this mean for me as a white person but also what does this mean for me as a follower of Jesus? At the time of the Civil Rights Movement, King, Martin Luther King Jr., Reverend Dr. Pastor, argued that church leaders needed to take a broad view of their mission and accept responsibility for addressing social inequity. In his 1963 letter from Birmingham Jail, written in longhand from his jail cell, King lamented the failure of white churchmen, in quotations, to stand up for racial justice when it meant challenging the local power structure. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound, King wrote. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. King is spot on. A theology of inaction. Some white Christian leaders have even provided moral and theological reasoning for their reluctance to challenge the existing system. Evangelicals in particular generally prioritize individuals' own salvation experience over social concerns. The primary mission of the church in this view is to win souls for Christ. Working for racial justice and contrast may be seen as a political issue. All issues are moral issues in the eyes of of Jesus of Nazareth. In that configuration, immorality only lives in the individual person, says DuPont, the religion historian who grew up in Texas. There's no conception of systemic injustice and systemic sin. Well, the first one to conceptualize systemic injustice and systemic sin, let's just say he was born in a manger. Civil rights activists who cited the Bible in support of their cause were often dismissed as a bunch of theological liberals, DuPont said. Oh, so leftists and left-wingers are Christ-like and non-leftists and non-left-wingers are unchrist like That's what they're subconsciously, openly admitting. And then it becomes an argument about who really believes the Bible. If Christianity is really about individual salvation... And the mission of the church is to win the lost. Then it is said that these people who are telling us we need to get involved in the civil rights movement are just just trying to lead us astray. No, it's all about, I don't know, stabilizing you in Jehovah Jireh, humanized in the form of a 33-year-old human being who was crucified. The rejection of a quote unquote social gospel remains popular among those conservative evangelicals today who see advocating for Black Lives Matter or immigration rights as political activities. Not, they, they, I thought that these activities are pleasing to a global icon, itinerant preacher who is the son of Mary and Joseph. It is an argument with roots extending back to the, to the theology of Thornwell and like-minded religion scholars of the 19th century. What then is the Church Thornwell acts in his 1851 report on slavery? It is not as we f- fear too many regard it a moral institute of universal good whose business it is to wage war upon every form of human ill, whether social, civil, political or moral. Uh, All I can say is... In the lake of fire... They are eternal slaves of Lucifer. Such pronouncements have made Thornwell popular among... Quote-unquote orthodox Christian theologians who rebel against liberal interpretations of the church's mission in the modern world. Again... They think of liberal, they think of Jesus, they think of conservative, they think of the evil one. The adversary, Arch nemesis, of God. Why telling yourself keep doing that if you don't have to? Why hitting yourself? Why you hitting yourself? Why you hitting yourself? Once his pronouncements on slavery and race are disregarded, Thornwell's theological views still resonate. One of the buildings on the grounds of his former Church of South Carolina is Thornwell Hall. Until it closed due to concerns of the, over the coronavirus, the building was used for children's education. The, the word trifling comes to my mind. The First Presbyterian ministerial staff had not been overly concerned that by honoring Thorwell, it may be offending potential African-American members. As far as I know, it has not kept people from my door, says Gabe Fo- uh, Florenton. Flo- I'm glad I mispronounced his name. An associate pastor at the church. As a Christian, you're supposed to be caring, which means you're supposed to be the opposite of uncaring. Flower has studied Thornwell's writings, many of which are highly sophisticated, and he's dismayed that theologians' views on slavery and race have made it more difficult for people to appreciate his broader biblical insight. Didn't Jesus control his liquor? (laughs) If it were an impediment to someone, Flora said, I would love to speak to that person and say, Look, we need to condemn what is wrong with him. We need to celebrate what is good. You got a lot right on the scriptures and everything wrong comes to race. If you get race wrong, you get the entire Bible wrong. Ultimately, you get Jesus wrong. One thousand percent. Wisdom and Jesus It's for everybody, not just progressives and liberals. Getting everything wrong with regard to race, however, can be an unforgivable failing for people whose life experience is shaped by racism. Perfectly stated, for many years, African-American worshipers were relegated to the first First Presbyterian Balcony. Church authorities later permitted them to have a church a few blocks away where they could worship separately under the supervision of the First Presbyterian Elders. That is not the will of God. It became known as Latson Presbyterian Church after one of the church's early pastors. The church has only a few dozen active members these days, but the congregation is closed and the Sunday services are intimate and joyful gatherings. There is no longer any connection to the original church. I don't know anyone who goes to First Presbyterian, says Rosina Lucas, 88, a longtime Latson member. I've never had any interest in attending Rosina you go, woman, that's right. I'm not gonna call her a girl because she's a woman. Nor has Hemphill pride an elder in the Latin congregation. I see that church as a stranger really, he said. Great. No I, I, I that's great to me. That is good news I've been reading this whole time. For pride and other Latson members, the Thornwell connection still taints the parent church. Quite understandable. It's an affront to me, Pride said, to have buildings named after people who interpret the Bible in that manner is disrespectful to all black people. Right. Editors note, in response to NPR's reporting, the elders of First Presbyterian Church voted on July 6th to remove the Thornwell name from their church buildings and lecture series. Also, if it wasn't for NPR, you would still be glorifying a hard-hearted sympathizer of white hierarchy over black souls in the flesh Hmm. Hmm. and they say we're not political you only do quote unquote right when it's political So, I'm going to go ahead and read this. A Georgia church kicked out of the Southern Baptist Church, in quotations, Southern Baptist Convention. I, I always put them in quotations because they're not a S- Southern Baptist Convention to me at all. For allowing gay members, wants to make sure everybody's welcome. Andrew J. Wan, the American South, public 639 p.m. April fourth, two thousand twenty-one, East Coast time. Updated twelve thirty-seven p.m., East Coast time. April fifth, two thousand twenty-one. Townview Baptist Church, in Kennesaw, Georgia, was kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention in February for allowing LGBT plus members. Townview Baptist Church, Kennesaw, Georgia. Two weeks after being kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention, Townview Baptist Church celebrated its thirty-second anniversary by formally accepting members of. The SBC said they should have turned away. One by one, Pastor Jim Conrad introduced seven new members, which in the Baptist tradition have to be approved by a majority of the congregation. He didn't mention that Brockton Bates and his partner Skyler were gay, nor that another new member was transgender. He didn't have to. His church knew who they were and has spent the past two years coming to terms with the fact that inclusion for Townview had to look different from what was required to remain in the SBC, whose bylaws say churches which act to affirm, approve, or endorse homosexual behavior would be deemed not to be in cooperation with the convention. On February 23rd, the SBC executive committee voted to remove Town View for affirming LGBTQI plus members, the culmination of a two-year inquiry. Essentially, the SBC has decided that because we welcome these folks into our family, that we're no longer welcoming their family, and we're okay with that. Conrad said, "What we decided is that when we say everybody's welcome, that means everybody. When we say everybody's welcome, that means everybody." Says Pastor Jim Conrad of the Townview Baptist Church in Kennesaw, Georgia. The Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee voted to oust the church for allowing LGBT plus people to become members of its congregation. The journey to oppose the nation's largest Baptist convention in quotations I put was an arduous one that cost the church members and that cost the church members and financial contributions. Its exclusion from the SBC has sparked wider conversations about what it means to be a Southern Baptist in modern America. For Bates, a lifelong Baptist who as a child was pushed toward faith-based conversion therapy to literally pray, try to pray the gay Way quotations. It's impossible to pray the day away. It's okay for gay to stay. Gay stay. Gay stay. Gay stay. That's my protest chant. Townview took a meaningful stand. After he and his partner took the stage March 7th, the church, quote unquote, exploded with applause and approval. That's actually a good explosion. For the first time in his life, he fully celebrated his Baptist faith without hiding his sexuality. It was different than any other experience of joining a church, Bates said. I could authentically be who God created me to be and I didn't have to hide it. To see that happen for us means it can happen for other people as well. The email that changed the church. In 1992, the SBC admitted its bylaws to include language opposing LGBTQIA plus members. That year, the SBC used the rules to remove two North Carolina churches, said Curtis Freeman, director of the Baptist House of Studies at Duke Divinity School. It's a contested issue that goes back a number of years, Freeman said. Since then, a number of churches have been removed. Conrad never imagined it was a rule he would have to contend with. That changed in May 2019 when he received an email from John Reynolds, a hospital administrator from Indiana who had just moved to Dallas, Georgia, with his partner, John McClannon, and their three adopted boys. His basic question was, would my family be welcomed in your church? I never had anyone ask me that question before, Conrad said. Conrad was aware of the bylaws. As a teenager, he had forged his faith in a conservative Baptist church in Stewart, Florida, when the state legislator was working to prohibit adoptions for gay parents. He began to re-examine the church's teachings after the shooting in 2016 that killed 45 people at Pulse, a gay nightclub in Orlando, but he meant he wrestled with how someone could be gay and a believer. Growing up in a conservative Baptist church, the message of homosexuality was that it was sinful, period, in the story, Conrad said. Conrad connected to Reynolds' story. Reynolds had spent most of his life attending Baptist sermons despite, quote-unquote, living a double life to avoid ostracization. When he met his partner, they stopped attending because they knew their relationship would not be welcome. They spent Sundays at home and sent their sons to church with Reynolds' parents. For a short spell, the couple attended... But the couple attended an inclusive Disciples of Christ Church in Nebraska, the first church they attended where they could be open about their relationship. But they hadn't found an inclusive church that quote unquote felt like home. There, there's a lot about the Baptist faith that we value, Reynolds said. When we adopted three boys, we wanted that faith to be a part of their life. After moving to the Bible belt, Reynolds scored Baptist church websites for signs of LGBTQI plus opposition. He sent 15 or so emails to those who that didn't show red flags. Conrad, whose members was 35 minutes away in the Atlanta suburb of Kennesaw, was only was one of only two or three to respond. They put two or three in quotations. I was like, I could either tell this guy no or say something kind or say we're not ready for that, Conrad said. And if I told him either those answers, wouldn't have had any controversy. Nobody would have left and nobody would have known, but I couldn't have slept at night. The family began attending and in the fall of 2019, Reynolds and McClanahan, McClanahan, I'm sorry, McClanahan, I've been butchering it earlier, became the first gay members approved by their church body. Reynolds said the vote was nerve-wracking, but 70% of the almost 200-person congregation approved the membership after recommendation from Conrad and the church deacons who had varied opinions on the matter. There's just a huge sense of relief that these relationships that we had formed, that they were real and not just people being nice, Reynolds said. Conrad lost a third of his congregation to other churches after some members organized a walkout. Fewer worshippers meant Townview lost forty percent of its rent, lost forty percent of its revenue, and Conrad was forced to cut some staff. An anonymous report was submitted to the SBC, which notified Townview that its actions were being reviewed. One man came up to me. I had baptized and performed his wedding, baptized his children, done the funeral for his mother. He said. Thank you for everything you've done for my family, but we won't be back, Conrad said. We've lost some good friends, some good leaders, a good bit of income, but we felt it was the right thing for us to do. Reynolds said he and his partner hadn't gone to town to be looking to change a church. Um, We weren't even looking for one to affirm everything about us and love us. just a place where sermons wouldn't tell us our lifestyles were wrong or that we're living in sin. Reynolds and McClanahan moved to Indiana to be closer to family during the pandemic. After the SBC decision, Conrad called them to thank them for moving the church in the right direction. Townview has eight LGBTQ members and five who worship regularly but have not joined. It's a direction Reynolds said more Southern Baptist churches need to go. I feel like most people know or are related to someone who's LGBTQIA plus. So when you say this group of people is not welcome to be part of your faith to be a part of our faith tradition you're closing yourself off to a very large cross-section of the country, Reynolds said. Um, let me see here. Did I finish everything I needed to? Okay, there's more. All right. A cross in the road for Southern Baptists. Southern Baptists are the largest Protestant denomination in the nation, but they lost 2 million members in the past 15 years according to SBC data. The denomination saw its largest membership drop in 100 years from 2018 to 2019 according to LifeWay Research. Though some of that can be attributed to the overall decline in churchgoers among younger generations, Duke Divinity School's Freeman said that faith's heartline conservative stances don't help. There's a really toxic culture going on right now, Freeman said. I think the Southern Baptists have really got some soul-searching to do right now because it's not just this. The SBC has come under fire this past decade for some executives' stances against critical race theory, an academic movement that examines how systemic racism affects a nation's laws, politics, and culture. The SBC faces criticism for not allowing women to be ordained as ministers. In March, prominent Bible teacher Beth Moore announced she is no longer affiliated with the denomination. Add to that they're di- add to that they're divided amongst themselves right now, Freeman said. there's a right flanking movement within the Southern Baptist that says the people in charge now have gotten liberal, which is unfathomable to me to think of the people in charge as liberals. SBC president J. D. Griar addressed the critics in his opening address at the executive committee meeting in February. If we're going to be gospel above all people, it means that we will be a church that engages all the peoples in America, not just one kind, Greer said. And that's hard. Bringing together people of different backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities into the church creates challenges. That inclusiveness remains off limits to the LGBTQ plus community. In an email statement, Greer said any member of the LGBTQ plus community is welcome to attend an SBC-affiliated church, but he doubled down on the SBC's code of refusing membership. When one of our churches chooses to affirm or endorse homosexual behavior through their definition of regenerate church membership, we have clearly come to a different understanding of what we believe is an essential doctrine, Guerrero said. The decision to oust Townview will not create a stampede of churches fleeing the SBC to promote more liberal ideals, Freeman said. It remains to be seen how church attendance look once the COVID-19 pandemic slows. The majority of Southern Baptists are older white conservatives, a base that's difficult to risk offending as the number of teenage baptisms declines. Freeman said Townview started a necessary conversation. It's a conversation Bates wishes had happened sooner, but he's thankful he found a church where he no longer hears sermons that threaten his sexuality with hellfire. Bates began worshiping at Townview in November and, he, and knew he was in the right place when two weeks after Minnie Conrad, the pastor voluntarily unexpectedly attended his grandmother's funeral. The church took a bold stance, loving stance. They were committed to faithfully living out the gospel and meant the world to me and my partner, Bates said. Townview has the option to appeal the SBC's decision, but Conrad said the church is confident in its standing. Church leaders are contemplating a membership with the Corporative Baptist Fellowship, which allows churches to set their own policies. Conrad said he has received calls and letters from across the country thanking him for taking a risk in the name of equality and the church has steadily added members while seeing online viewership double. Occasionally, he'll think of those who left the church when he opened the doors wider. Then he'll remind himself of Reynolds, who traveled more than 30 minutes to another town to worship it without fear, and more importantly, in peace. If we could give a message of hope to our LGBTQ plus community and encourage other churches to have this talk, I don't know that it will start a wave, Conrad said, but maybe it will start a ripple. All I can say is... I fully support LGBT plus clergy I fully support LGBTQI plus ordinance I fully support LGBTQI plus licensing I fully support LGBTQI plus membership in churches I fully support the LGBTQI community in every which way I fully support LGBTQI plus culture Um. I fully support transgender rights. I fully support the transgender community in every which way. And I'm very proud of Conrad for (laughs) being open about his support for the LGBTQ plus community. I'm thankful for Brother Conrad. I'm thankful for Pastor Jim Conrad for affirming the human rights of all human communities. So much respect to Pastor Jim Conrad and much respect to the LGBTQIA+ Plus members, much respect to the congregation, most of them approved, much respect to them, and I'm glad that the sermons were respectful to LGBTQI Plus community. Um and all I can say is is that people being LGBTQI Plus is not about threatening anyone that's cisgendered or heterosexual. It's, this, it's, it's It's the bullshit that people have when it comes to Let's create a heterosexual rights movement That's a piece of shit movement, here's why You don't fucking need it You don't fucking need it at all, and here's why LGBTQ plus people are saying You can't be the only ones with rights We gotta have rights too That's what LGBTQ plus community is saying we don't want to take your rights. We, we want to have rights too. That's what they're saying. That's exactly what they're saying. So no one's rights are being stepped on if everybody has the same rights. LGBTQ plus people are rightfully demanding egalitarianism. And... There's nothing wrong with that. So... Being the private life police, it's not going to make people live the way you want them to. Um, And just love people for who they are and whatever grievances you have about how they live their lives. Talk to them about that. People can get big, bad, and bold in a pulpit saying those things, but you won't say those things to LGBTQ plus people. When you do say them, you're screaming instead of conversing because hollering is not the same as conversation. So I really want them to understand that. Um, let me get this off my, uh, chest, and then I'll end it. Um, I am for Black Lives Matter. I appreciate the Black Lives Matter protest. I am for the Black Lives Matter movement. I am. It's a much-needed movement. And so that's it. Bruce Garencer.net The Life and Times of Bruce Garencer. One man's journey from Eternity to hear who will be the next American Jesus your face here why I hate Jesus I don't hate the flesh and blood Jesus who walked the dusty roads of Palestine nor do I hate the Jesus found in the pages of the Bible These Jesuses are relics of the past. I'll leave it to historians to argue and debate whether these Jesuses were real or fiction. Over the centuries, Christians have created many Jesuses in their own image. This is the essence of Christianity, an ever-evolving religion bearing little resemblance to what it was even a century ago. The Jesus I hate is the modern Western Jesus, the American Jesus, the Jesus who has been a part of my life for almost 58 years. The Jesuses of bygone eras, R-E-A-S, eras, have no power to harm me. But the modern Jesus, the Jesus of the three 100,000 Christian churches that populate every community in America, he has the power to affect my life, hurt my family, and destroy my country. And I, with a vengeance, hate him. Over the years, I have had a number of people write me about how the modern Jesus was ruining their marriage. In many instances, the married couple started out in life as believers, and somewhere along the road of life, one of them stopped believing. The still believing spouse can't or won't understand why the other spouse no longer believes they make it clear that jesus is still very important to them and if forced to choose between their spouse and their family they would choose jesus simply put they love jesus more than they love their families sadly These types of marriages usually fail. A husband or a wife simply cannot compete with Jesus. He is the perfect lover and perfect friend. One who is always there for the believing spouse. This Jesus hears the prayers of the believing spouse and answers them. This Jesus is the BFF best friends forever of the believing spouse. This Jesus says to the believer, you must choose me or your spouse. It is this Jesus I hate. This Jesus cares nothing for the poor, the hungry, or the sick. This Jesus has no interest in poor immigrants or unwed mothers. This Jesus cares for Tim Tebow more than he does a starving girl in Ethiopia. He cares more about who wins a Grammy or ACM award than he does poverty stricken Africa having food and clean water. It is this Jesus I hate. This Jesus is on the side of the culture warriors. This Jesus hates homosexuals and demands they be treated as second-class citizens. Let me put that in a way that is more of a modern feel. This Jesus hates gender and sexual diversity and demands they be treated as second-class citizens. This Jesus hates the entire LGBTQI plus community. And demands they be treated as second-class citizens. This Jesus, no matter the circumstance, demands that a woman carry her fetus to term child of a rapist. Afflicted with a serious birth defect. The product of incest. The product of infidelity. The product of teen pregnancy. Or... A one-night stand? Question mark. It matters not. This Jesus is pro-life. Yet, yet this same Jesus supports the incarceration of poor young men of color, often for no other crime than trying to survive. Yet, this same Jesus supports the incarceration of poor. Young women of color, often for no other crime than trying to survive. Yet, this Jesus supports the incarceration of anyone of color, often for no other crime than trying to survive. This Jesus is so pro-life, he encourages American presidents and politicians to slaughter innocent men, innocent women, innocent children. And... Innocent people of all sexual orientations, all gender identities, and all sex characteristics. This Jesus demands certain criminals be put to death by the state, even though the state has legally murdered innocent people. It is this Jesus I hate. This Jesus drives fancy cars, has palaces and cathedrals, and followers who spare no expense to make his house the best mansion in town. This Jesus loves Rolexes, Learjets, and expensive suits. This Jesus sees the multitude and turns his back on them. Only concerned with those who say and believe, quote unquote, the right things, It. Is this Jesus I hurt? This Jesus owns condominiums constructed just for those who believe in him. When they die, he gives them the keys. But for the rest of humanity, billions of people, this Jesus says no keys for you. I have a special Hitler-like plan for you. To the ovens you go. Only unlike the Jews, I plan to give you a special body that allows me to torture you with fire and burnstone forever. It is this Jesus I hate. It is this Jesus who looks at Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, atheists, agnostics, deists, universalists, sects, Secularists Humanists And skeptics And says to them Before you were born I made sure you could never be in the group That gets the condominiums when they die This Jesus says And it is your fault Sinner man Sinner woman Sinner child Sinner person Of the entire gender and sexual Diversity It is this Jesus who made sure billions of people were born into cultures that worshiped other gods. It is this Jesus who made sure billions of people of the entire human diversity were born into cultures that worshiped other gods. It is this Jesus who then says it is their fault. They were born at the wrong place at the wrong time too bad this jesus says burn forever in lake of fire called hell it is this jesus i hate this jesus divides families friends communities and nations this jesus is the means to an end this jesus is all about money power and control This Jesus subjugates women, tells widows it's their fault, and ignores the cries of orphans. Everywhere one looks, this Jesus hurts, afflicts, and kills those we love. It is this Jesus I hate. Why? What I can't understand is why anyone loves this Jesus. Like a clown on a parade route. He throws a few candies towards those who worship him, promising them that a huge pile of candy awaits them when they die. He lets his followers hunger, thirst, and die. Yet he tells them it is for their good that he loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. This Jesus is all talk, promising the moon and delivering a piece of gravel. Why can't his followers see this? For me... He tells his followers, I have the keys to life and death. I have the power to make you happy and I have the power to destroy your life. I have the power to take your children, health, and livelihood. I can do these things because I'm the biggest, baddest Jesus ever. Fear me and oppress women, immigrants, orphans, people of all sexual orientations, all gender identities, all sex characteristics the entire human diversity, and atheists, and all secularists, and all non-Christians. Refuse my demand, and I will rain my judgment down upon your head. But know that I love you, and only what is best for you and yours. It is this Jesus I hate. Perhaps there is a Jesus somewhere that I could respect, a Jesus who might merit my devotion, For now, all I see is a Jesus who is worthy of derision, mockery, and hate. Yes, hate. It is this Jesus I hate. When the Jesus who genuinely loves humanity and cares for the least of these shows up, let me know. In the meantime, I hate Jesus. Here's what I... want to talk about. He's talking about the hijacking of Jesus. He is talking about the pimping of Jesus, the prostituting of Jesus. The ways that Jesus has been used to be unchristlike and ungodlike and ungodly and unchristly to many people, including the entire human diversity of outcasts and the entire human diversity of non-traditional living and thinking human beings. So he's not talking about the historical Jesus that he hates. He's talking about humankind's savagery when it comes to their severe extreme and ultra beyond measure and compare uh, misapplications when it comes to the historical Jesus. I had to say that for clarity's sake. American Jesus, stay away from me. Ashley Darling, December 5th, 2019, Global Immigration and Refugees, LGBTQIA+, Peace and Nonviolence, Politics Theology, LetterChristians.org. I once heard a fantastic sermon at my alma mater, Indiana Wesleyan University, the kind that stays with you over half a decade. I would credit the man who gave it if I could remember his name. He spoke about the nativity, about those wooden glass or plastic figurines we place on our mantles or in our yards at Christmas, the ones with the serene faces. He noted how clean and calm they were. The message revolved around the idea that as followers of Jesus Christ, we like to see him in this light. The ubiquitous plastic lit up lawn Mary always has a smile, is fully clothed, And has not the slightest trace of blood, excrement or sweat most likely involved in giving birth inside a cave or barn. The lit up Joseph looks unperturbed as though he hasn't just watched in terror as his bloodied son emerged from his screaming wife. There is no dirt. There is no grime. We do not wish to see Jesus degraded because we do not wish to be degraded with him. We don't want to sink ourselves into the messy and difficult parts of life, into Christ's suffering for us, so we sanitize him. And we make him more like us, the pastor said. He went on to remark on the variety of nativity sets he had seen. In Hawaii, he'd seen sets with darker skinned and traditional Hawaiian garments. In Japan, Mary and Joseph wore kimono and were fair skinned. Instead of conforming ourselves to his image, We have conformed his image into our likeness, he continued. As soon as he said these words, I knew they were true. I wondered, what would the American nativity look like? The American Jesus is overwhelmingly masculine, but Jesus was a man, you may say. Granted, however, Jesus was not toxically male, the way he is often portrayed in evangelical churches. An insidious syncretism has combined the ideals of American masculinity with the often incompatible principles of the gospel. Thomas Jefferson is often ridiculed for his Bible, out of which were taken huge chunks since he did away with the miracles and passages he considered contradictory. Google search the Thomas Jefferson Bible to understand the reference. If I were to make such a version catering to the average American male, I imagine it will require moving the part where Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a pathetic donkey instead of a glorious steed. I would need to excise the episode in the Garden of Gethsemane, which Jesus scolded Peter for cutting the Roman soldier's ear off while defending his Lord. Instead of Jesus restoring the ear, this toxic masculinity version would place the sword in Jesus' hand, and he would make a final stand. Among the olive trees, he would never submit himself to be interrogated, beaten, or crucified by the Roman invaders. Highlight the bravery, strength, and authority. Minimize the self-imposed weakness. Make him as we desire him to be. A few years back, I sat in a pew as the pastor of a local church delivered an impassioned sermon. He centered his message on the then-newly-released film, exodus gods and kings this man took exception to the directional this man took exception to the directorial choice to cast a 12 year old boy as the voice of god hollywood is diminishing the power and the might of god no offense boys or ladies for that matter but you simply can't recreate the power the booming voice of god he shouted rancor filled my thoughts mingled with confusion Didn't God sometimes present himself as a still, small voice? Didn't Jesus represent himself as the lamb slain as an offering for us? Especially galling was the insinuation of God's masculinity and an adult masculinity at that. Women and boys, as the pastor's implicit argument went, were not reflected in the Godhead, despite Jesus' coming to earth as a helpless infant through the womb's of through the womb of a godly woman. The American Jesus is also overwhelmingly white. I recently introduced my husband to the movie, A Knight's Tale, starring Heath Ledger. My favorite line occurs when the characters are having an argument in a pub. The French adversaries declare that the Pope is French and therefore France is superior to England. One of the protagonists replies, the Pope may be French, but Jesus is English. The absurdity of this statement is humorous, yet we do not often recognize how we similarly reshape Jesus' image into our own likeness because we take our cultural contexts and ideologies for granted. A celebrity newswoman infamously declared that Jesus was a white man without the understanding that the Western idea of whiteness, in quotations, would not begin to be created by the rub of history and culture until... The burgeoning of the transatlantic slave trade in the early 16th century. Another example comes from the irreverent musical, Avenue Q. In the middle of a song about racism, one of the puppets, A. La Sesame Street, remarks that Jesus was a fine upstanding black man. Another puppet responds, but Gary, Jesus was white. They argue back and forth between themselves, each defending their re, re- respective identities through the vehicle of Jesus's supposed race. Finally, a third character shouts, guys, Jesus was Jewish, and they all laugh. In revealing Jesus as he really was, a Jewish man in an occupied territory, a member of an often reviled ethnicity, the privilege meant to be invoked by his name has been deflated, The truth this dialogue highlights is that it is never about Jesus or his background. It is about the centering of one's own culture by molding Jesus into it. It is about the centering of ourselves. We need to understand that Jesus was wholly unlike us. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Not merely in his perfection, but in culture also. We We cannot simply read him or the Bible through our limited cultural lens. The American Jesus is also overwhelmingly conservative. Jesus is a Republican, after all. He's for lower taxes and building walls. I found this out the hard way during the last presidential election, but in a sense, it has always been this way in America. Jesus was once a slaveholder, too. He was also in favor of Jim Crow laws and hated the civil rights movement at the time, but lauds it now that racial tensions are supposedly in the past. Jesus hates Black Lives Matter protests. He hates those feminists and those those gays ruining this country. He is surprisingly fine with philanderers, with liars, and those in power who exploit their positions for political and personal gain. Jesus is only interested in those sins which you can see. That's convenient for a God who's able to look on the heart. The American Jesus is merely me. My wants, my desires, my beliefs plastered over the facade of a lifeless figurine. American Jesus, stay away from me. American Christianity versus Faithful Christianity. Now, I read this before, but because I read new things, new articles, I mean, you'll get something new out of the old that I already read to you previously. Chris Ebling, March 21st, 2019. Uh, oh, Ashley Darling did the American Jesus Stay Away From Me one. Let me get back. Chris Ebling, March 21st, 2019. American Christianity versus Faithful Christianity, Immigration and Refugees, plus peace and nonviolence, politics, theology, women. Micah, chapter six, verse eight. What is required of thee? I was flipping through my Facebook feed the other day when I happened upon Mary Colbert, a self-proclaimed Christian activist speaking on Jim Baker's TV show. In the clip, she stated that Donald Trump is the chosen one of God, that if people come against the chosen one of God, you are bringing upon you and your children and your children's children curses like you have never seen. Let me state that another way. If I oppose Donald Trump, God will curse me, my children and my grandchildren. I thought a lot about what Ms. Colbert said over the last 24 hours. I've come to realize that she represents the public face of what I've come to think of as American Christianity. Now, do not confuse American Christianity with Christianity in America. Christianity takes on many forms in this country. What I term American Christianity is a unique form of Christian expression that has come to the fore over the last 150 years in which, I assert, has little to do with the basic tenets of what I'll call faithful Christianity. The fundamental precepts of faithful Christianity are very simple and can be found in both the Old and New Testaments. An Old Testament example comes from the prophet Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus himself articulates the two most important characteristics of a Christian in Matthew chapter 26. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and most important commandment. The second most important commandment is like this one, and it is. Love others as much as you love yourself. All the laws of Moses and the books of the prophets are based on these two commandments. To be a faithful Christian, all you have to do is love God, act justly, show mercy, and walk through life with humility. Pretty simple, right? So how does American Christianity reflect these commandments? Perhaps the best way to understand the distinction is to use a literary technique from high school English literature. Let's compare and contrast American Christianity with faithful Christianity. Faithful Christianity seeks peace and reconciliation between individuals and nations. American Christianity espouses confrontation and preemptive war. Faithful Christianity turns the other cheek. American Christianity carries a gun. Faithful Christianity treats the foreigner among us with dignity and respect. American Christianity denigrates the foreigner and labels them criminals. Faithful Christianity offers forgiveness. American Christianity assigns blame. Faithful Christianity offers mercy. American Christianity seeks revenge and retribution. Faithful Christianity serves the needy. Faithful Christianity serves the needy among us. American Christianity builds 160 million dollar temples. To its ego across the street from homeless shelters. Faithful Christianity stands in awed silence at the birth of Christ. American Christianity turns Christ's birth into a multi million dollar vaudeville show, complete with singing, dancing, and a Santa sleigh suspended on cables from the roof of the sanctuary. Faithful Christianity frees itself from the material world in order to follow Christ. American Christianity fully embraces American consumerism. Faithful Christianity submits to the cross. American Christianity wraps itself in the flag. Faithful Christianity does not judge the lives of others. American Christianity condemns that which does not conform to its ideology. Faithful Christianity confronts the power structure in pursuit of justice. American Christianity wields power to oppress others. American Christianity is non-denominational in that it transcends Christian traditions. It cannot be called fundamental it cannot be called fundamentalists since it ignores the fundamental teachings of Christ. I have seen Presbyterian churches that embrace American Christianity and Baptist churches that do not. American Christianity is a cancer consuming the vital organs of the body of Christ. Unfortunately, American Christianity is the public face of Christianity in this country today. Everyday Americans rarely see the faithful Christian serving meals at the, at the Austin Street shelter or the bridge. They do not see faithful Christians providing free medical or legal services to the poor. They do not see the faithful Christians at the Victory Meadow Learning Center teaching English to immigrants or helping them obtain citizenship. Instead, they see American Christians calling for the expulsion of immigrants and the banning of refugees. They see condemnation of girls and women and the entire LGBTQI community and calls to deprive them of their civil rights. They see the hatred of those who profess different faiths and secularism slash secularity and calls to wage war against all of them, waging wars against all of them. American Christianity is the antithesis of the teachings of Christ and the life to which faithful Christians are called. American Christianity is the religion of Constantine. It is the religion of Rome it is the religion of, of empire Let me say my thoughts before I go any further I appreciate faithful Christianity I dismiss American Christianity I appreciate Bruce Grincer's version of the real Jesus. I dislike the American Jesus. I dislike the Western Jesus. I dislike the modern Jesus. I like the real Jesus. I like the historical Jesus. I dislike Imperial Christianity. I dislike Constantinian Christianity and I dislike colonial Christianity. I like Christianity in America So, I want to make sure that I read this. Seven re- this is MentalHealthGraceAlliance.org. Seven Reasons Young People with Depression and Anxiety Don't Go to Church. May second, two 2018 by Mental Health Grace Alliance. Have you ever stopped to consider the challenges that teens with common mental health conditions might encounter in fully participating in the activities and programs offered by the typical church? It's a question we must consider if we are invested in the lives of children and teens with mental illness and value the importance of passing our faith on to future generations. According to a recent study from Baylor University, the likelihood of someone becoming a regular church attender in young adulthood is highly dependent upon an established pattern of church participation during the teen years. The percentage of adolescents who attend church less than once a month who become weekly attenders in young adulthood is 3.2%. To appreciate the struggles that teens might experience in attending worship services, participating in youth groups, serving in outreach activities, or going on mission trips, We need to recognize how attributes of mental conditions common to this population cause difficulty functioning in the environments where ministry takes place. We also need to see how the interaction of those attributes with common elements of church culture, our expectations for how people should act when we gather together, creates real barriers to church involvement for teens with mental illness. Here are seven... Excuse me. Here are seven potential barriers to church involvement we might consider for teens with common mental health conditions and their families. One, stigma. Teens with mental health conditions aren't likely to receive the accommodations and supports that assist with inclusion in school while they're attending church. The stigma associated with mental illness combined with fear of being singled out for special attention and confidentiality concerns often cause teens and their parents to avoid any mention of their support needs to student ministry staff and volunteers. Two, anxiety. Anxiety may represent the mental health condition that prevents the greatest number of teens from attending church. Compared to their peers, teens with anxiety disorders often misperceive the level of risk in new or unfamiliar situations. Consider the range of experiences that might produce intense discomfort or distress for a teen, With anxiety seeking to engage at church. They may struggle with the level of self disclosure expected as a small group participant. They may fear becoming the focus of attention during the worship service, small group, or youth ministry activity. The prospect of reading from scripture during a worship service or performing on the worship team might be overwhelming. Kids with social anxiety are often intensely uncomfortable with the process of making new friends among unfamiliar, same-age peers from other schools. They may struggle to fit in following transitions from children's ministry to middle school ministry or middle to high school ministry, where they are likely to encounter older peers with established friend groups. Teens who continue to experience separation anxiety may be able to attend church services but experience great distress at the prospect of an overnight retreat or an invitation to participate in a mission trip in a distant city. Three, self-control. Teens with ADHD or other conditions that impact executive functioning, anxiety disorders, mood disorder, psychosis, often struggle to get to worship services or other church activities on time. They may experience more difficulty, delaying gratification and avoiding negative peer influences and patterns of behavior. Substance use, sexual activity likely to disrupt friendships and relationships with kids from church. They may be prone to intense spiritual experiences on mission trips or retreats, but struggle to maintain a spiritually disciplined life when back in their daily routines. 4. Sensory Processing Sensory processing differences are often associated with the autism spectrum, but are very common among teens with anxiety disorders and youth with ADHD. Kids with sensory differences may be averse to light, noise, touch, and smells that others find engaging. Activities at church that may provide intense discomfort include worship services with loud music and spectacular light shows, perfume, cologne, and body sprays, hugs, handshakes, and other physical contact multiple conversations taking place in close proximity. Five, social communication. Kids with anxiety disorders are prone to misinterpret the body language, facial expressions, tone, and inflection of voice of their peers. Kids with ADHD often drive peers away through interrupting others when they speak or through impulsive words or actions. Their social communication struggles often interfere with their ability to fully participate in small groups that form the foundation of the discipleship process in many churches. Six social isolation. A wide range of mental health conditions common to teens may lead to withdrawal from relationships with peers involved at church or inhibit the development of friendships that lead to invitations to church activities. Kids who are depressed withdraw from interests or activities they previously enjoyed, including church. Kids with social anxiety may have a smaller circle of friends to invite them to church. They are less likely to be involved in the range of extra extracurricular activities that bring their parents into contact with other families who might invite them to church. seven past experiences of church kids with mental health conditions often become targets of bullying because the subtle nature of their disabilities makes them more acceptable targets than kids with overt special needs. in addition, their challenges in regulating their emotional responses to bullying reinforce the behavior among those looking to get a reaction from their targets. When teens encounter their tormentors at church, many will question the the authenticity of Christianity and develop perceptions that Christians are hypocritical. Kids who are anxious or obsessive will experience more difficulty in getting past church experiences associated with hurt or discomfort. Does your church have any type of inclusion strategy to help welcome children and teens with common mental health conditions and their families into your worship services? or Christian Christian education activities? What about adults with mental health conditions? Our team at Key Ministry has developed a book to guide churches in developing a mental health outreach and inclusion strategy and offers lots of free resources and supports to churches seeking to welcome and serve families affected by mental illness in the communities we serve. The groups offered by the Grace Alliance are an outstanding strategy for supporting individuals and families living with mental illness. In addition, they offer the redefined Grace Group, a small group experience for students, high school and college. As a child and adolescent psychiatrist, I'm well aware that the apple often doesn't fall far from the tree and parents with mental illness often have kids with mental illness. We as the church need to be prepared to welcome and embrace children and teens affected by mental illness while coming alongside parents are seeking to raise them in the faith. Stephen Grievich. M.D. is a child and adolescent psychiatrist in Chagrin Falls, Ohio, serving as president and founder of Key Ministry, an organization that promotes meaningful connection between churches and families of kids with disabilities for the purpose of making disciples of Jesus Christ. He is the author of Mental Health in the Church, a guide for churches seeking to minister with families impacted by mental illness, published by Zondervan in February 2018. So I do appreciate that um, mental health is not a stigma for some people in church. It should be that way for everybody in the church. And um, we should do everything we can to support young people with depression, anxiety, including non-young people too. So what I just read, hey, we, we need all hands on deck, all loving hands on deck. To support people with any kind of disorder, any kind of illness, with any kind of hurt, habit, and hang-up. That's good. So, while I have time, I'm going to talk about um, Where Love Ends in the Fight for Disability Rights, RLC Editor, October 16, 2020, Family and Parenting, Politics, Practical Justice. Editor's note, this is an anonymously written essay taken from Keeping the Faith, Reflections on Politics and Christianity in the Era of Trump and Beyond. Each Friday, Tune Out on Election Day 2020, we will be sharing excerpts from this anthology of dissent. Disciples of Jesus know that God persistently asks us to consider what we might love more than him. You won't sacrifice that, huh? What if I wanted you to? You say you won't live in that place or take that job. How about for me? What if I was the one asking to help that person instead of them? God always questions the limits of our love so that we might find more of his love, which knows no limits on the other side. I love this about him. Unfortunately, I and those like me often find that love for us is beyond those limits. I have a disability caused by a genetic mutation. Throughout my life, when it came to including me in social activities, games and sports, lessons or job opportunities, there were always friends, coaches, teachers, teachers, and employers who shrugged and said it would be too hard. My parents had to fight for me to be in a mainstream school. Friends and dates were tough to find. I'm still working through the insidious anxiety of the constant exclusion, rejection, and doubts about my abilities. But as disabled people know, being outside the limits of love can get much darker. Over this summer, a woman recorded a conversation she had with a doctor in Texas telling her that the hospital decided to stop treating her husband for COVID-19 because even if the treatment was successful, he would have a low quality of life. Why? He was quadriplegic and had a traumatic brain injury. The belief among medical practitioners that disabilities detract from the value of life itself is familiar to disabled people. Last year, I went to a new doctor who asked if I was going to have children anytime soon. She wanted to inform me that there were treatments nowadays for ensuring that children did not have my condition. I naively asked what the treatment was. It was early detection of a genetic mutation in fetuses and abortion. Of course, I should have known. One of this doctor's colleagues once asked me to to participate in a survey he was conducting of patients with my condition to assess what else? Their quality of life. Experiences like these lead the disability community to almost uniformly oppose physician-assisted suicide. The risk is too high that a doctor will readily believe a disabled person's desire to die is rational. And in most places, it is only disabled people who can request this treatment, which is discrimination. Everyone else gets suicide prevention. We get assistance. Abortion raises similar risk. Parents afraid of life with a disabled child opt to terminate. Opt to terminate. Parents afraid of life with a disabled child opt to terminate. Individual choices add up, decimating whole populations of disabled people. American parents, for instance, abort two thirds of fetuses diagnosed with Down syndrome. Here is where I depart from much of of the disability community who believe that the bodily autonomy of pregnant people requires that we should fight discrimination and abortion while keeping it legal. That, too, is a boundary on love. The decision not to allow a life to exist is a determination of that life's value. The fetus cannot be born because fill in the blank. The people in that blank aren't valuable enough to warrant birth, but valuable to whom? The individual parent might value the life enough to give birth under different circumstances, which society prevents. So society's willingness to invest in those people, the people in the blank, matters. Here is where I depart from the Republican pro-life movement. They too have borders around their love, a wall, if you will, reinforced with concrete conservative ideology. If, for instance, you think America is both exceptional and a meritocracy, And why invest in anyone? An individual's poverty is nothing more than their failure to avail themselves of the opportunities America offers. Their anxiety about how they will raise a child betrays their lack of faith because in all things, America works for our good. If they choose abortion, they are their doctor or someone deserves punishment. Trump knows his Christians think this way. They will not connect his desire to slash benefits, increase policing, Segregate public and private housing, heap scorn on vast swaths of people, or any number of other issues to parents calculating whether they want to raise a child in this world. The only way that anyone seriously argues Trump is pro-life is by pointing to the Supreme Court. But overturning Roe v. Wade will likely have a marginal impact on the abortion rate, which, in any case, has been plunging since 1990. So how do you fight for life? Invest. Invest your prayer, your money. Your time and your love and vulnerable people fight for disability rights and disability pride so expecting parents won't be afraid after a diagnosis so we won't have so many bigoted doctors. Do everything you can to make sure people have housing and food and mental health and mental health care and regular health care and money lots of money. Stop demeaning people shout black lives matter from the rooftops and listen for God's sake listen to people whose lives are not like yours then fight alongside them. If your politics or your feelings give you pause here, I hope you reconsider the line you've drawn. So I, d- I agree with this person when it comes to departing from the Republican pro-life movement, everything you said on that. Um, I think abortion should be kept legal and there should be discrimination fights that occur when it comes to the subject of abortion. Um, I am for the bodily autonomy of pregnant persons. I am. Um, I don't, however, I want to say this. I am dismayed that People are so anti-disability that they don't want to give people with disability life. I'd rather you say I don't have what it takes to be a mom or I don't have what it takes to financially and environmentally do right by the child. But to terminate a pregnancy for Down syndrome, um, I have I, I have trouble with that because there should be no discriminatory attitudes when it comes to abortion. Period. If you're going to abort, keep bigotry out of it, because people cannot help how they're born. People cannot help how they're conceived. People cannot help what happens in the womb. So I understand the whole, I don't want my child to go through hell for being black, for being disabled, for being, you know, as society says, queer, and for being a woman. I I understand those trepidations, but your child can't help how they were formed in the womb. Nobody asks for their skin color. You just you just get it when you're born. Nobody asks for sexism. As soon as you're born, life tries to fuck you over. Um. As soon as you're born, for some people, life tries its best to shit on you. It tries its damnest to be an asshole to you. So I just so. Yes, I'm pro-choice. I am for abortion rights. I support reproductive rights. I just do not like the whole... Because there's something that I can't help, I have to terminate the pregnancy. I'd rather just terminate the pregnancy because of what you're unable to do for the kid, regardless of whether they'd be disabled or not. But, you know... I just I just have a tough time with you know aborting the child because they're because of something they can't help that's not fair. that's not fair at all um I'm struggling with this issue that's why I'm repeating myself because I understand the whole you know but I have the right to an abortion, yes, you do. And that right should not be taken away from me, but (sighs) I just hate that we do things because of what people truly can't help. That part really has me shaken up. Um, Okay, I think I have enough time to read this. I do. Hatred toward Asian Americans is not a new evil. May, Elise Cannon, April 9, 2021. General peace and nonviolence race. The March 16, 2021 killing of eight people connected to, do, to two different spas in Atlanta, Georgia, explicitly targeted Asian Americans. While the details of the shootings are becoming more clear over time, there's no doubt that the tragedy was another horror in the growing number of hate crimes targeting the Asian-American community. In February, 84-year-old Vitcher Rantanapakadi, an elderly top immigrant, was brutally beaten to death on the streets of San Francisco. National news outlets reported that hate crimes against Asian-Americans increased by nearly 150% in 2020. While I'm grateful the media is covering these concerning increases, hatred against Asian Americans is not new. And why did it take such catastrophes as the death of Rantanabacty and the Atlanta spa murders for the world to pay attention? White supremacy is at the heart of anti-Asian hatred. American history is wrought with wrongs inflicted upon immigrants from China, Japan, and other parts of Asia. The very first act excluding immigrants to the United States specifically targeted Asian Americans in the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. While Japanese Americans fought for the United States during the Second World War, many of their family members were detained and held in internment camps between 1942 and 1945. These are just some of the institutionalized ways anti-Asian racism has been systematically employed. This brief history doesn't take into account the ideologies of yellow peril that pervade our society even today. The corona pan- the coronavirus pandemic and Donald Trump's identification of it as the China virus only added fuel to the fire, which allowed long-seated bigotry to rise to the surface, manifesting itself in incidents of hatred, including harassment, spitting on people of Asian descent, beatings and escalating fears and exacerbating the emotional toll upon members of the Asian American community. Any act of violence toward a person because of the color of their skin, their place of origin, their sexual orientation, their ability or special needs, or any other perceived difference goes beyond just a violation of being politically incorrect. Rather, such violence allows the seeds of discrimination, racism, sexism, homophobia, and other abhorrent othering to germinate within our society. We should be grieved by the smallest of offenses toward our Asian American neighbors, because when such hatred goes unaddressed, it has the potential to manifest itself in the worst of evils, such such as the brutal killings that took so many Asian American lives in Atlanta this past week. We must be vigilant in rooting out the racist and xenophobic ideas that have pervaded American society since its conception. Assumptions such as white male supremacy and dominance and assumptions of white supremacy and privilege. We all must do more to stop hatred towards Asian-Americans, Pacific Islanders, people of color, and to eradicate hatred wherever it exists. We got to stop hatred when it comes to these, these uh, specific people named. Violence against communities triggers loneliness and isolation. In speaking with one Asian-American friend about experiences of racism, she said maybe the isolation we have all experienced from the coronavirus pandemic will make non-Asians understand what extreme isolation can feel like. What would it mean for us to stand in solidarity with our Asian-American neighbors? We must reject assumptions of white privilege and acknowledge the realities of white supremacy that will pervade in our society today. Is there, If there is any doubt, watch news and see how the families of those who died in Atlanta are grieving what can we do? Report incidents that you witness to groups like Stop AAIP, Asian American and Pacific Islander Hate. Support community-based efforts that promote safety and restorative justice. Join with groups like the Anti-Defamation League. Say no to Christian nationalism, Asian American Christian Collaborative, and others who are doing direct advocacy to address this issue. Sign this letter on saying no to Christian nationalism, that specifically identifies ways the Christian communities, especially evangelicals, must recognize and condemn the role Christian nationalism plays in racist actions such as the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes and the recent insurrection in the United States Capitol on January 6, 2021. In addition, a group of Christian organizations led by mostly people of color hosted a prayer vigil of lament in response to white Christian nationalism leading into Holy Week 2021. Consider joining them or others to grieve and stand in solidarity alongside our Asian-American neighbors. They'll be hosting a week of action, responding to Christian nationalism, anti-Asian hatred and other injustices during the week of May 16th. These are just initial steps we all must be willing to take to ra- to eradicate anti-Asian hatred. I am for the stop the anti Asian hate crimes I want to make sure I have um, st- stop the Asian hate right yes I th- yes I am for uh, stop Asian hate yes I am for stop aAIP I am for stop AAPI hate. Let me say that again. I am for stop Asian hate. I am for stop AAPI hate. I am for the current legislation that is in Congress that is against Asian hate crimes. I am against Asian hate crimes um i hate the racism against asian americans um i hate anti asian racist incidents and so i'm i i'm i i i'm gonna say that i am in full solidarity with AAPI communities I am for actively uplifting AAPI communities and I do want to say this from my heart Uh, um I think about how proud of myself I am for speaking out during such a turbulent time. I'm really glad that I used this pandemic to grow up more in the sense that I am truly fulfilling the legacy that my grandma instilled in me to live by. I am continuing her local human rights activism and making human rights activism global. I'm taking her local to the global, making her local global. And I've said that before, but I want to say why, a new reason why I'm saying it right now is because I've always been a person concerned with foreign relations and international anything and everything. And I've always been the kind of person that cares at deeply because I'm an empath and I'm a sensitive person and I'm intuitive. I care deeply about um, intercontinental injustice and injustice of all classifications. So I'm thankful that I was even able to get these truths out. Um, because also for this last reason, then I'll stop the episode for today. I think about how Jesus would feel regarding these issues. And I think that he would be very proud of me for raising awareness about the, despite being labeled with autism despite being you know despite being child abused and and yes I'm a black person I am of heartfulness I am not of heartlessness <laughs>